Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode nine of My Way. This is part two of my conversation with fellow Graytonian and wildlife vet, Dr. Michael Cock. We had such a rich conversation that I'm posting it in three parts. So if you haven't listened to episode eight, go check it out first and then stay tuned next time for part three. You won't want to miss any of it. Can you guess where Michael's favorite big landscape is? You might be surprised. So stay tuned to find out. And thanks for listening. Enjoy. Of all the vet school graduates, what percentage would you say go into wildlife veterinary medicine as opposed to sort of domesticated animals, yeah. you know, cows, horses? You'll find at the beginning of the course, so in the first couple of years, almost 100% want to be wildlife vets. By the time they quite qualify, you probably got 10%. Why is that? Because of the challenge of getting your foot in the door to do wildlife work. So, so everyone wants to do wildlife work, um, but the reality, as you go through vet school and you do your different classes and different um, disciplines and stuff like that, you know, then people start changing. You know, they maybe like pathology more than they like medicine or whatever, and so they start drifting towards maybe becoming a pathologist. And then folks who start doing large animal stuff and dairy stuff, they suddenly find they really like it. And they just look at wildlife and look at the competitiveness of stuff and then um, maybe they don't have the passion. But then you have this like 10% at the end. You say, I'm, I want to be involved with wildlife, you know, whether mm. it's zoos or whether it's an exotic practice or it's doing stuff like I've done in my career. Um, but it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, the, and, I, and I get contacted by people all the time and want to get involved in this and, want to, and, it's, and it's difficult mm. because it's not easy. No. And I, what, that was sort of leading into my next question slash statement, which is, I wonder too if doing wildlife veterinary medicine becomes sort of an all-consuming occupation as opposed to a more cut and dry domestic animal. Yeah, no, no, because you can go to work in the morning, you come home at night, you can have a family can have a pet, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the challenges of this current time, you know, is that we, when I think of what I've done in my career, and, and, and it's not a nine-to-five job, and it's damn hot at times, and it's sweaty, and it's dangerous, and um, you get sick. So what's happening, and, and, and I've seen it this last decade or two, is that you, you, you've got to have the passion, but then you've also got to have the ability to, to put up with very difficult environments. Right. Um, and get up early and work at weekends and, and, and stuff like that. And, and we, we find, I'm finding there are less and less people who are willing to do that. So I say to people, if you want to be a wildlife veterinarian and you really want to get stuck in, then you can't look at the mentality where, where you're not going to work beyond five o'clock. It just, it's just not going to work because right. you go out. I mean, I go out and sometimes I'm gone for two months. And, you know, when I'm gone for two months and working, I'm working – Every day. I mean, I might manage to get a, a day off wherever I am, but I'm working solidly mm-hmm. because it's hard work. And, and, and I'm working maybe in the tropical forest and it is hot 
there is a Jurassic Park of, of insects in the forest floor that I want to bite you, and stuff that's flying around, um, and 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 the rains. You know, when it rains, it really rains, and uh, you know you're, you're eating rice and beans for six weeks. You know, and uh, I mean it's it's great, but it's it's not always for the faint-hearted. If you want your com comforts, you just create your own sort of comforts that mm -hmm. suit you in, in, in those sort of environments. You know, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, I mean it's it's like a lot of things in life. Like, but above all, you've got to have a passion. Yeah, I think I, I wonder sometimes, too, about kids who are growing up today and they're seeing not just stuff on television, but they're all this social media that is completely biased towards the most wonderful moments in people's lives. And they think, oh, I want to color an elephant. And that's what I'm going to do every day. And there's going to be no down days. There's going to be, because nobody posts, hey, uh, I just got a divorce because my job has completely <laughs> consumed my life. So yeah. yay no, for yeah, me. Yeah. You, know what, you know what, you know what, my, my, my second wife, I've, I've been married twice. I've been married okay. since. My second wife, there's a famous song about keeping your hound dog under the porch. I can't remember who it is. It's, I think it's a country in West Wales. It's, it's a song about how difficult it is to keep the hound dog under the porch. So when my, my wife and I, Divorced, and we, it was friendly, and she she gave me this song. Mm. So I said, yeah. and I mean, it, it, yeah, and, it, and it's and it and it, it's tough, you know. I mean, I look, I don't have kids, yeah, and I'm not married. I have, I don't have kids by choice, so I don't regret that. I have two brothers who have kids and stuff, mm. and um, but yeah, and you know, and, and the thing is, it's it's tougher when you get older because you're going at a hundred miles an hour, doing stuff, you know, and then at some point, I mean, it's like I you know turned sixty five this year and. Things are slowed down. I mean, I can't do some of the things that I used to do. Right. You know, it's like forest elephant work. I was meant to be in Cameroon at the moment now, but I've decided I've done forest elephant for 15 years. I'm still alive, and I just know. I mean, the last time I was doing it, I thought, "Cock, you got to, you got to think about this because you, you you don't have the kind of drive that you used to have, but you're also going to get yourself killed." What younger. would get you killed there? Because we get so close to the elephants. Yeah, and 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 I take chances all the mm -hmm. time. In fact, mm -hmm. if, if I don't take chances, I don't get the job. So, and I've come very very close on many occasions. Um, it, it's funny, you know, as I've been in, in this game for so long now, and I, you know, I look at I look at the how, how we manage wildlife and how we manage nature, and and then I look at how much interference we take on, how, how much we interfere with nature to supposedly save it. You know, and when I go and chase forest elephants, for example, and I dart them with darts and they fall asleep, I put these tracking collars on because that's what they, you know, with some of these projects now, like Mike, you know, they're monitoring the legal killing of elephants and, and the elephant emergency fund that comes out of Save the Elephants in Kenya, they, they pay because they want to track these animals and they want to try and use collaring as a as law enforcement. But I look at the effort we put in and how much stress we put these animals under. And then I look at the results. And, and I'm not sure that we are getting the results. And I'm, I'm just tired of stressing it. Because, you know, I'm no different from a poacher. The elephant doesn't, the elephant, right. the elephant doesn't know that. And, but the difference is the elephant wakes up with me, doesn't wake up with a poacher. And it still has its ivory. You know, there needs to be younger folk to go out there with that passion and, and, and chase it, to, because maybe they don't know any better. But I think there are times when we manipulate. I mean, I have a real hard time, for example, in South Africa with the wildlife industry here. Because I think it's manipulative. I think it's Victorian in this kind of collector's mentality. That's why I don't work in South Africa. I mean, I work all over Africa and I work in big landscapes that have a real conservation drive. Yeah, so I think as I've matured and grown older, I mean, I just look at this and think, well, 
what bang am I getting for my bucks? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think we need to look at what we're doing. My colleagues, you know, who make these tracking collars, um, Africa Wildlife Tracking up at Pretoria, I have long chats with them, and they and they think that they think it should be regulated because they say everyone's putting collars on, you know, for tourism. And and then and then we're doing it for for, for conservation and, and follow animals in these big landscapes. But they're doing it just so they can find the animal quicker. Right. You know, so so you know, yeah. And I mean, it's big in South Africa. I mean, South Africa is different from other countries. It's we have this, and I'm not, you know, I'll get myself in trouble saying it's a kind of an Afrikaner type mentality in in the sense that we want to control things, we want to manipulate things, so we want to collect things, and they must be weird and wonderful if they're white and they black impalas and 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 stuff like that. I want them, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was at the university here, you know, and going to a plot in Brooklyn, in Pretoria, to try and catch a nyala that had got out of a cage that they had there. When there's people who keep these animals, you know, in, in their back gardens, and, you know, and then you go to the bigger places outside, you know, where people, and it's all manipulated, it's all controlled, it's all breeding and auctioning. And, and I just I just think we sometimes have to stand back and just, just let things be. Yeah. You know, we, we must be able to justify things by creating an opportunity for people to see these animals and, and see the beauty of it and stuff like that. But I think it's arrogant that we go in there and manipulate these things and try and change things and, because we can. Because it's basically like a very long electronic leash. Exactly. And then we pull on the leash when we want to see the animal. That's right. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by The Antelope. Whenever you're feeling undefined, think of the antelope. Unless you're a wildlife vet in Northern Africa or a member of the IUCN's Antelope Specialist Group, most humans often overlook antelope. These even-toed ungulates are defined not so much by what they are, but rather what they are not. If you aren't a sheep, cow, or a goat, you're likely going to be tossed in with the antelopes. There are over 90 species of antelope, ranging from the giant elan weighing in at one ton to the tiny clip springer able to jump 15 times its own height. From the speedy pronghorn antelope topping off at 60 miles per hour to the herds of over 100,000 wide-eared cob, the list of antelope superlatives goes on for days. With so many sexy megafauna on the planet, it's no wonder that the Tiang, Saiga, Hirola, Niala, and the Attic sound more like Star Wars characters than real antelope species. Antelope, making Bovidae great again. Can you describe a typical day as a wildlife vet in your experience? My experience. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. Well, let me tell you, I, I've done a lot of work. So I worked one of the, one, in my career. I worked for an organisation called the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is based out of New York, Bronx Zoo. Very innovative organisation, and anyway, they had a very innovative program called the Feel Better Program, which has now morphed into the Global Health Program. Okay, so I, I, I worked with them for ten years, living here in Great. So in one of the countries that I went on several visits to to do work with South Sudan. Now this is in between fighting and periods of peace, and then. Recent fighting uh, impacted on some of the work I was doing there. But, I mean, I have never been in a, in a part of the world that is so big and so extraordinary in terms of its landscape. You know, in the area that we worked, which is east of the Nile, so if you imagine the Nile going up through Sudan, to, to, through South Sudan to Sudan, so it comes comes at the border with Uganda, and then it turns north and it heads up, goes through that big swamp called the Sud Swamp, 
And uh, the area we worked, and I've been there several times over a five or six year period, was about 200,000 square kilometers. And there's a grassland there, which is about 60,000 square kilometers, which is the biggest intact grassland left in this planet. I think there are some grasslands in Brazil that might, Pantanal, I think, and stuff like that. But, but it's extraordinary. And there's a migration there that competes with the Serengeti that has been known about, but no one, no one really had documented it. I mean, in the early days, in the 80s, they kind of knew it. They flew by aircraft and they could see where, you know, and they kind of had an idea, you know, they started in near Ethiopia and then moved to the Nile and back. So I got involved with the WCS's South Sudan program. So mainly, mainly working with elephant and then the antelope. So the, the white-eared cob, the white-eared cob is east of the Nile. You go west of the Nile, it's Uganda. And the Nile is big enough that it stopped movement of, the, of these animals across. And then Tiang, which are like sesame. And they live up in the swamp. So when I arrived there, and I mean, it's, it's actually giving me goosebumps now. because So I arrived there, and I've never been in South Sudan before. And so I'm the veterinarian working for WCS. And, and the idea was to, to collar them with satellite collars so they could document the migration. We did the same with the Tiang, and, and also with the elephant. And the migration is about 1.2 million antelope. And it's, I mean, and it's through the grassland. So anyway, we're looking for the Tiang. Okay. I can't. I cannot even imagine that number of animals yeah, one, one point at one. Yeah, they might have gone down to eight hundred thousand because you know there was an eighteen twenty year civil war. But, but I still can't we, imagine. We know. We that. know that animals move. That move survive conflict much better than animals that are resident. You just look at Gorongosa in Mozambique. All the buffalo were taken out during the civil war there. And same in same in South Sudan and the Ethiopian border with elephant, with, with uh, buffalo and, and hartebeest and zebra. They were all eaten eaten by the armies. The Wadiya Cobb are the, the largest number. And then the Tiang numbers have been up to something like 700,000. Okay, but they didn't know how many there were now, maybe 120,000, 200,000. So we're, we're trying to find the Tiang, and the guy can't find it. So, so we have two aircraft, and then we have a helicopter. And so we're working on, on Cobb. And I mean, the Cobb is amazing. I mean, you know, 10,000 Cobb. So then we're, we're on, kind, of, kind of on standby. So the plane's out looking. And then I get, get this call from this guy, Falk, Falk Grossman, who's a, a biologist, ecologist. And he says, I found the Tiang. So he gives us the coordinates to Phil Matthews, the chopper pilot. And we pile in. So we take off. We take off from Juba and we go up to 6,000 feet. And we fly for about, I don't know, maybe an hour towards the Sud. And then we start descending. And I'm sitting in there and I've got my dart gun and, you know, we're going to put a dozen collars on Tiang and stuff like that. And we fly. And then as we get lower and lower and we get to 1,000 feet, I just sort of sort of brown on the savannah. You know, the savannah is very green. And we get closer and closer, and there's little dots. You can just see that they're moving, some of them. And then we get down on the ground, and there's just animals as far as the horizon. I don't know how many there were there, 10, 20,000, I don't know. But they're all running in front of the helicopter. And then, and then I look at Paul Elkin, who's the boss there, and I say, Paul, which one do you want to call? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, which one? <laughs> and, he, and, he, and everyone starts laughing. And, I mean, we had to, and, and you know, we, 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 it was very, very difficult because – if we darted an animal in the masses, of, and you know, and these darts have little pink tail pieces, but they don't stay in the animals as much as we put barbs on them and stuff like that. So you dart an animal, and then dart comes off, and now you've got ten thousand animals. And and you know, you know how we how we sorted that problem out? It was sorted out by nature itself. I was working on cob, and we we lost a cob that I darted it, and then we couldn't find it, and there was like ten thousand cobs in there. And the guys say, "Hey, no, you missed." And then they started getting, you know, giving me shit in the helicopter and stuff like that. And then suddenly this shape goes past the top of the helicopter. And then another one. And then one com- comes past my open door, and it's a vulture. I said to Phil, I said, follow those vultures. 
So he flies along with the helicopter just behind these vultures and they fly about half a K away and they land in the tree and there's the cob struggling to get up. And they're all sitting there, you know, like you know, the vultures are a bit like undertakers. You know, and they're all sitting there. Of course, they don't land. They don't land because thing's dead, you know. So they're sitting there watching and they're watching the helicopter. And Anyway, I managed to, it was quite difficult to land and I managed to get it. And I secured the cob and then they managed to land the helicopter. We put a collar on it, woke it up and off it went. Whenever we went into these big groups now, and I darted an animal and, and dart came out. We just backed off and we just looked. And you'd see, you'd see this. Then suddenly you see this circle coming down and stuff. And then and you'd see these birds just coming down. Cause, and, and we'd fly and there would be this animal struggling to get up, you know, because that's what they do. They pick up differences in a, a group of animals. You know, that's why they that tell an animal sick, you see. so specialized. and Because they've got such good eyesight. That is incredible. So, 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 and, and, and I always tell people, I see, this is stuff that you don't get taught at university or at school. You know, this is stuff that you learn when you deal with it. If you're talking about a seminal moment in my, my career, you know, that it was flying in this, this wild, wild landscape, which has got conflict all around. It still does. It's even worse now. And flying into these remote areas and still seeing these vast herds of animals that have been there in that whole sort of sud swamp area. I mean, it's it's been there forever. The history of that area, you know, the people trying to find the source of the Nile, the Nile and, and, and great explorers, you know, Stanley and whatever. Um, extraordinary. And when was it that you had that experience? It was 2005, oh, okay. or something like that. So in, in the late 2000s. Yeah. Because I, the last time I was in South Sudan was 2016, mm-hmm. and we had to get out because mm-hmm. the war broke out again. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we just got out in time. I had two friends there who were badly hurt. What happened? Well, we arrived, and I arrived with, I mean, I tell you what, we, it was a great program because we, we had almost 180 collars on animals around South Sudan. And uh, so I arrived in May uh, 2016 with 30 collars, 30 antelope and 30 elephant, because if you really want to justify collaring, then you try and do a longitudinal study. Okay, so you have animals that are collared, and you're following them. You build up data, and then you go back and you change the collar and put another collar on. So you, you have 10 years of data on it a particular elephant, you know, then it really starts giving you some really useful information. So I arrived, and it's not easy to get South Sudan. So I, I arrived there, and we settle in, and we're all excited, and the chopper's going to leave tomorrow and stuff, and I'm staying in this compound, two compounds away from Paul Elkin and his girlfriend, um, who's the, ch- the chief pilot. And anyway, the next morning, I go to work, and they're not there. And I'm waiting and waiting, and then I ask the guy, they said, no, no, they're, they're in hospital. Said, what do you mean? So anyway, cut a long story short, that night, they were attacked in their compound. We don't know whether it was criminal or whether it was deliberate, but South Sudan then was at, on the edge and they were machete. So I spent the whole day with other guys. Well, I was with them in hospital. We eventually got flying doctors from Nairobi, pick them up. They got flown to the Aga Khan in Nairobi and then flown down to Mill Park in Johannesburg, which is one of the top drama units in the country, in, the, in Africa, in fact. And they've been in and out of there several times. I just got a call from him last week and they're, in fact, this week they've Soki, the lady who's going back for another operation, because she got she got machete right across the eye. She's a professional pilot. Oh my gosh! And and I I stayed for a week to try and help stabilize and sort things out. Then I left, and then I think two weeks later the whole fighting started again. I think there were three hundred people killed in Juba. Quite a few expats were raped. It's a disaster. And and that was what fifteen months ago, or almost two years now. And there's no work going on in terms of conservation. Because you can't go those areas that we worked. I mean, where I saw those 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 Tiang near a place called Aon, that's in rebel hands now. You can't fly. You know, the helicopter we fly is a, is a, one of these Eurocopters, and it's three million dollars worth of helicopter. Yeah. 
you know, and so, so um, you know, conflict, when you work in conservation, you, you know, whether it's poaching, illegal killing of elephants, or it's just people fighting, instability, it's a constant issue. Mm-hmm. I guess if you go to Angola and, and the northern part of Namibia and stuff, you know, these, these animals have actually developed these paths that they take you through the minefields. It's the same in Victoria Falls, you know, and, and if you go down to Gonorazur, on the border, there's a section there that's mined. And they don't... Well, the animals, you know, you find, you can see a lot of baboons without arms. You know, oh, wow. and, and I think what happens initially, you get animals killed or maimed, maimed yeah. and stuff like that. And some of them survive, some of them don't. And they're very clever. I mean, these elephants, they know the pathway. And they know, you know, they reckon they're pretty good at picking those things up. Like, you know, they can yeah. use these mine detectors like these rats, you know. And uh, so, so I think these animals learn. There's still mines there, but they just know where to go. Mm-hmm. And they kind of know where it ends. And then they can start being normal again, you know. But, but it's, a big, it's, a big, it's a big problem. Uh, you know, and, and in Mozambique, you know, they've done a tremendous job. What the, the Halo organization and mm-hmm. stuff like that have done a tremendous job over many, many decades of pretty much clearing most of the mines. And I've actually, right. you know, I, I remember driving up to, to Keith and Colleen's, in fact, and suddenly having to stop at a, at a police roadblock because they were, there'd been a rainstorm and a big anti tank personal mine, anti tank mine, had been washed onto the road. So oh, we suddenly wow. heard this boom and they blew it up and then we, we could proceed on our way, you know. So, Oh my gosh. <laughs> what was one of the best days that you've had as a wildlife vet and what has been one of the worst days? Mm, one of the best days. Um, some of the, the work that I did in, in Zimbabwe, and when I went back to Zimbabwe, I worked at the university there for a year and then I got this job with National Parks. And I was then got involved in, because there was a runner war in the late 80s and the 90s in Zimbabwe, very similar to the Rhino War that we're seeing in South Africa now. And there were so many things that were done at that time to try and stop the poaching and, and save the rhinos. And so I got very much involved because I was working on contract for parks with a, an, e, an EU-funded program to help build capacity. And so I got involved on the, all the Rhino work. I remember we were doing work in the Zambezi Valley, and there used to be like 3,000 black rhino in the Zambezi Valley. There's none left now. So I worked in the Zambezi Valley and we used to take the rhino out of the valley to safe areas. And towards the end of that work, I think the, the best day I, I had was we were, we were going after, there were two rhino left in a place called um, Chawari Safari area, which is down the valley towards Mozambique. We're staying in a place called Perinengu, which is on the Zambezi River. This is, this, this is a most remarkable, it's a hunting area, but there are, there are acres and acres of fossilized forests there of these three to four million old trees lying on their sides with the branches sticking up. Wow. There are dinosaur prints there, where you can see where the dinosaur ran across the river, sandstone. There are hot springs on top of the mountains there. It's extraordinary. And there's rhino. But there were two rhino left. There was a bull and a cow. And they, was, they had been so clever that our trackers in parks just couldn't get to them. And so they've been tracking them for ages and ages. And we were based with the helicopter. And then we get this call, the guy, the chief warden and his team, and they, they, they found it. And so I take off. We take off. And Ronnie O'Hara is the pilot, and we fly in, and there's, there's this rhino cow. Got this big, what looks like a cut on the neck. It's got this big sore on her head. And then I suddenly look, and there next to her. Hmm, what did he find next to that injured rhino? I think you'll have to join me next time to find out as wildlife vet Dr. Michael Cock tells us the rest of the story and more. Don't forget to follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with our two podcasts, My Way and Lecker Y'all. 
And, you know, if you know any interesting humans we should have on the show, please don't hesitate to email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. See you next time.